0: Welcome back to the Sharp Bend Podcast. I'm Ashley, your hostess for the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest Alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and Alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to the Colorado Outward Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. So in this episode of the Sharp End Podcast, I get to talk to Michael Drake about the fall he took on El Cap and what it took mentally, emotionally, and physically to get back on the sharp end of the rope. During Michael's adventures of climbing and recovery, he got a personal visit from Royal Robbins in the hospital, met Hans Floring on the same route, and said hello to Lynn Hill at the Crag. I'll let him tell you the rest of the story.
1: My name is Michael Drake. I've been climbing for a little over 10 years. I got into climbing as a teenager when I worked in Yosemite National Park for the concession out there and kind of fell headlong into the sport. I've been doing it ever since. Um, Back in 2012, almost exactly seven years ago on May 30th, I was on the nose on El Capitan with my friend Zach Wasserman and managed to take a pretty bad fall and got um, pretty hurt um, from that. Um, and today, I'm going to talk a little bit about that accident and sort of the recovery process and this kind of multi-year journey that it shaped itself into before I was able to finally get back on that route again. Yeah. So it kind of all started. I had just graduated from college and Zach and I jumped in a car in Philadelphia and drove across the country in three days, which looking back on it now was kind of weird um, and way too fast. We pretty much blitzed straight over to um, Yosemite for this sort of like post-graduation month we were going to spend out there climbing. Um, We spent a few days kind of warming up in the high country, climbing Tuolumne and waiting for the weather in the valley to get good and then jumped straight onto the nose. Uh, We had done a little bit of big wall climbing before I had done the Leaning Tower, and Zach and I together had done um, Moonlight Buttress a few months prior. Um, so jumping on the nose was something that we felt was like within our wheelhouse, something that we were capable to, of doing, but was definitely a bit of a stretch in turns or would be, you know, pushing it for us. It was definitely something we we're both really excited for and eager to like, challenge ourselves with. Yeah, so the climb started off pretty well. Um, we climbed a sickle edge on the first day and met Hans Florin on sickle edge, which was really cool bivvied there
0: you met Hans Flory? yeah there
1: was like a huge log jam um through the stove leg cracks so we just bivied on sickle ledge and decided to kind of start early the next day and catch up some pick up some ground and while we were up there setting up our ledge Hans Florian and some friends kind of climbed up there they're just doing a sickle run and we got to hang out with him for a couple minutes so auspicious beginnings to this um climb and
0: because he because he also had an accident yeah,
1: and an accident on the very same ledge it turns out so um, (laughs) There's some fun little narrative arcs that kind of weave their way through this whole story. Um, The next couple days sort of went without incident. We made our way up to El Cap Tower and then to camp four. And we were sort of on like a five day plan for climbing the nose. And on the fourth day we got up to the pancake flake and we had been uh, swinging leads the whole way up the wall. And that one was my lead, which I was very excited for. And um, at that time kind of, free climbing five tens on gear was sort of the edge of my comfort zone. And I had really put this pitch, you know, very much on a pedestal. I kept going into my mind, you know, 10, a lie back. I can do this. I just have to power through it. Just have to keep moving 10, a lie back. That's the bread and butter of the pancake. Like I can do this. So when I got there, I was very much focused on the free climbing racked up, dumped as much gear as I thought I could with the bag and blasted it up. And actually the free climbing part went really well, made it up to, um, this sort of triangular ledge about two thirds of the way up without any sort of problem. And then quickly realized that that pitch has a lot more than just 10, a free climbing on it. Um, right after that ledge, it really changes character a lot and turns into sort of thin, steep 11 C crack climbing or like kind of committing C one, um, aid climbing. And unfortunately for me, I'd left a lot of my small gear and all my hooks and all the, you know, aid climbing necessities down the bag because I've been trying to drop weight for all the free climbing aspects of it. Um, But because I was young and because I was all excited that I just freed this long flyback, I decided to just go for it and made my way most of the way up, but eventually kind of ran into this wall where um, the crack gets pretty thin and you're maybe 10 feet below or maybe even less than that, six-ish feet below the next ledge where the next belay is at. And I ended up just kind of stuck in a really bad spot. I was top stepping on a Purple Metolius TCU with two of the lobes in the wall and the third lobe just dangling out. My last piece of gear i clipped was a fixed nut that I'd aided off of. My left hand was on this like terrible sloper and I couldn't really reach anything above me. There was this like little rock kind of wedged into a, a crack that was tantalizingly out of reach. My smallest piece of gear cam wise I had was a gray Metolius that just didn't fit anywhere around where I was. Um, the rock kind of flares outward a little or um, downwards a little bit. So I probably could have gotten a nut placement, but I was a little too rattled to look for anything and sort of found myself in that like terrible position where I just kept, um, waffling back and forth between things. Um, I kept thinking, Oh, you know, if I just commit to this move, I can pull one free move and get to that like wedged rock and I'll be fine. And I'll be out. And then I would get ready to commit to that and then get scared and then think, Oh, maybe if I get some gear and I get eight off of that and then be up and pretty much oscillated back and forth between those two thoughts for a couple minutes until my hand popped off the sloper that it was on. And that kind of made the choice for me. Um, so, um, I popped my hand off there because I was standing with like one foot in my eighters immediately turned sideways a little bit um I remember having the rope catch as the fix nut that I had last clipped caught, and then the tug as the stem on the fix nut broke um yeah, and uh, kind of the last thing I remember was being sideways looking down, seeing that triangular ledge and I kind of have this like snapshot memory of just seeing the ledge and knowing something bad was about to happen. And then the next sensation I had was a big impact, spinning around, seeing blood, being really disoriented, and realizing I just messed up pretty badly. Um so I guess before I go on to what happens next, I'll just talk about like the moment of falling um for a second you know it's something i've had a lot of time to meditate on and try to figure out what was going on there um there are a couple of, like small not small a couple of mistakes i had made that sort of all synergized to make a much larger accident um you know my first mistake was obviously leaving the gear down at the bag um you know i, I like to think that i brought the gear that i expected to use i just didn't know that it was going to be smaller up ahead but you know i think it's always worth bringing a couple extra pieces um when you're climbing something you've never climbed before, especially, you know, small cams and things like that, that really don't weigh very much and don't, um, you know, I don't think an extra camera two would have stopped me from climbing the lie back earlier down below. Um, I definitely should have placed a little bit more gear. I had actually back cleaned this yellow TCU earlier. That definitely would have saved me, kept me off of this ledge, but I had back cleaned it thinking I was going to need it higher on the, um, on the pitch. And because I had so few small pieces of gear, I felt compelled to, you know, back clean as much as I could. So I would be able to continue, um, making progress uphill. Um, and I think that if I had taken things a little bit more conservatively, or even just said, you know, I don't have enough gear for this, have my friend tag some gear up to me on the haul line. That would have been a much more, you know, smart way to approach this. And then lastly, you know, it's, it's hard to really put myself back in the headspace that I was in when I fell because it was such a strange, um, moment in my life. You know, this is the first time I had been that high up on a rock I'd never spent four days on a rock before the long side spent was three days on the leaning tower a couple of years prior. Um, and after four days of really pushing myself, you know, I, I think your brain starts acting kind of strangely. I was really scared in the moment right before I fell, but that also had been like the 18th time I'd been scared in the last 24 hours. I kind of gone to this point where fear alone wasn't really making me, um, take ser- situations seriously, or perhaps I, I had, been in enough, like kind of scary moments over the last couple of days that i just got gotten through by committing to the moves and just kind of turning my brain off that I thought I could do that again. And I, I really think I, um, didn't have like the mental control in that situation that I probably should have had. Um, and yeah, and something mm-hmm. that I think I learned a lot from this whole experience. And I'll talk about that more when we get back to, um, kind of the post accident part of my climbing career. Um, but yeah, but all those little things, I think each on their own were somewhat forgivable kind of added up into a pretty bad fall. Um, and, you know, I fell about 30 feet before I hit that ledge. And then a 30-footer isn't terrible on its own, but is pretty rough when you, you know, hit a rock. <laughs> exactly. Hit a ledge. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Once you're up on Pancake Flake, you know, you're in the the upper dihedrals. It's just this beautiful, clean, steep rock all the way to the summit. You can see straight down to the start of the route. And there's, like, absolutely nothing on the wall between you and the ground except for, like, this one ledge. Um, and it is a, a little bit hilarious that <laughs> – I managed to catch that single piece of rock protruding out, just blank ran in every direction except for this one little thing. Um, Yeah, so I remember hitting the ledge pretty hard. Um, I remember spinning around. Oh, yeah, so I hit the ledge, rolled off the ledge, and like two feet later, my rope catches me, which was perfect. (laughs) Great timing. Um, I had this streak of blood coming down on the wall from me to the ledge. I remember spinning around a lot, and my first real thought I had was, I think I might be paralyzed because I couldn't really feel Like I, I felt a lot of pain and pressure in my hips and really nothing past that. Um, and fortunately you
0: couldn't feel your, you couldn't feel your legs. You couldn't feel your feet. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I remember distinctively trying to wiggle my feet and just not experiencing any sort of sensation. Um, but luckily after about like 30 seconds, I was yelling down my partner and my partner was yelling up to me trying to figure out what was going on. I think it was immediately clear to my um, friend Zach that I had taken a pretty bad fall and I think I might've been screaming a little bit, but who knows? um but luckily after about like 30 seconds or some amount of time in my weird distorted perception of time I had from that moment um like everything sort of like flushed through my body and I realized I actually could move my feet I just like wasn't realizing it I think cuz my brain was dealing with a whole lot of new signals all at once so that was a moment of like big relief just realizing I had sensation all my limbs and then like 2 beats after that kind of all the pain came flooding in and I quickly realized that you know I I wasn't going anywhere. Um, and this was probably, I, I when I think about this whole accident, I think of it as being more lucky than it was unlucky. I was very unlucky that I hit that ledge, but I was pretty much really lucky in everything else that happened after that. So the first little bit of good luck was that we were climbing with 70 meter ropes. Um, and even though I was only about two thirds of the way up the pitch, it's a pretty long pitch. And I'm not sure that a 60 meter rope would have gotten me back down to the blaze stance. Um, and, but, Luckily we were climbing with the 70. We had just enough rope that my friend Zach was able to lower me down to the anchor. Um, So I guess it's also a little bit unlucky. It's like one of the few hanging blades on the entire route. So um, my friend lowers me down there and has to set me on to the, the, I'm literally sitting on the haul bag. He put me direct into the anchor and um, (laughs) didn't really have a lot of place to um, much of a place to put me while Zach was figuring out what we should do next and how to start initiating a rescue. It was pretty clear. So
0: you're literally just hanging in your harness then yeah. dangling feet dangling. Yeah.
1: It's hanging the harness kind of half sitting on the hall bag while he was also digging through there. Um, <laughs> I was in a lot of pain at this point. I think I might've punched Zach in the shoulder once when he kind of jostled me in a weird way. Um, I guess I'll kind of spoil the punchline right now because it adds a lot of context to what we were going through at this moment. I ended up breaking my pelvis in four spots. I collapsed my left lung. I broke four ribs and I broke the, um, like last inch and a half of my ulna off right at the elbow. Um, and one of the breaks for my hips was down the pubic symphysis, which is um, the kind of cartilaginous joint that holds your um, hip together down the middle. That just pops straight open. Apparently, it's an injury you only really get if you fall on your side, get T-boned in a car accident, or give birth to an exceptionally large baby um, is the <laughs> category of injury that was in. So my hip really wasn't a, a solid piece anymore. And my um, left ulna had broken off completely to the point where the tricep had actually pulled the end of the bone up into the top of my arm and I couldn't extend my left arm anymore. So I had essentially one functioning limb um, and really was not much of a help, much help at this free hanging blade that we were on. Um,
0: Is that limb, the free limb, the one that you punch Zach with?
1: It must've been. I don't think I could have thrown much of a punch in my left arm (laughs) at the time. Um, Yeah. Zach is really the the real hero of this entire story. He um, has always been exceptionally good at keeping his head straight when he's doing, scary climbing for whatever reason he loves tenuous slab climbing. I think that's where he gets his, you know, mental focus from. Um, but in kind of all this chaos, the first thing he did was, uh, get the portal edge set up, which is hard to do by yourself, even harder to do at a free hanging belay, and even harder to do when you've got this kind of screaming, panicking person bleeding on you while you're trying to set up the ledge. So somehow he managed to do that, which I still don't fully understand. Um, we managed to get my, you know, body onto the ledge, um, At that point, I'm starting to go into a little bit of shock because I'm getting really cold. Zach pulls out a couple of sleeping bags and throws them on me. And then we start thinking about um, how we're going to get off this rock. And we pull out our cell phones um, and immediately find out that we have no service because we're kind of in this strange concavity on LCAP. And this is where um, luck or my second round of luck comes in. We hadn't seen any other parties for the last two days. um, And sort of about an hour before I fell, we just saw this other team kind of pull around the, like the uh, of the nose um, a couple hundred feet below us. And we're in line of sight of, with us. And by the time the accident happened and I was in the portal edge, they had caught it up to us a little bit and they were probably two or three pitches below us, but close enough that we were able to yell for help. And we yelled down to them and their cell phones magically are working. And they called Yosar and initiated the rescue. And we sort of had this actual game of telephone going on where they would talk to Yosar figure out the questions they need to ask us, wait for the wind to die down, yell at us. We would confer, wait for the wind to die down, yell back to them and kind of went like that back and forth. Um, but really fortunately through a couple rounds of this game of telephone, we figured out that I probably had a collapsed lung. I probably did not have any pressing spinal injuries and I was probably going to survive, um, which are all key things to know in a rescue. Um, and because of that, USR was able to figure out that they were didn't have to short haul me with a helicopter right away. They could actually take the time to do a more controlled and safer rescue and flew some Rangers to the top of El Cap. Um, so they got some Rangers up there and.
0: Well, cause how, how many, how many pitches are you from the top of El Cap?
1: Oh, at that point. So we were pancake flakes, like pitch 23 according to the super topo, I think. So we were, um, maybe seven pitches from the top. Um, yeah. Okay.
0: So much closer from the top than you were from exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, so they geared up the helicopter, flew some people up there and started the process of lowering down a couple of Rangers and a gurney down to us. And while that was going on, um, pretty much the job that Zach and I had was just to maintain. Um, I, how are you,
0: how are you doing with maintaining? I was,
1: I like to think I was keeping it together, but the more I think back about it, the more I talk to Zach about <laughs> it, the less, I less of a good job. I think I was doing, uh, again, it was all on him for, you know, being the providing like the fortitude and the strength of the two of us. Um, It was super windy that day. I remember being so cold. I'd both um, sleeping bags on top of me. I was dumping blood from my left arm because I'd broken it so badly. And we had tied our two bandanas over the um, wound that I had to sort of stem the blood. And then using a sling, tied my arm straight up to one of the sides of the um, portal edge. I had this horrible moment at one point where I'd rolled onto my side and my arm had come down and I tried to extend it. And in that moment, like realized my muscle wasn't attached to the bone anymore, which was just this terrifying, like moment of revulsion um, and like pure body horror that I did. not wasn't trying to repeat. So we did our best to immobilize that arm. Um, there was a huge amount of wind going on. So the um, portal edge kept threatening to capsize and it was trying of like bucking around and I was in a bad state. So while this is going on, Zach is standing on top of me over the portal edge with one foot on each side, doing his best to kind of like stabilize it, add some weight where he needs to. And it's just in his most calm voice telling me stories about climbing and traveling in India and anything he could really talk about to just get my mind out of the moment. Um, And I really appreciated that. I remember looking out and seeing sort of just like the afternoon shadows um, sort of making their way towards us. And remember just thinking if that shadow gets to me. I don't know what's going to happen because I'm already so cold and if I'm not in the light sun anymore, I don't know if I'm going to be able to maintain this. Um, And actually at this point is probably when we made our biggest mistake Um, because we were just looking for anything to sort of get my mind out of this tough moment we were in. Um, I started eating a lot of food and pretty much consumed like three days worth of snacks in the space of a couple hours. Um, And it felt really nice to eat, but it turns out you should not eat if you might have to have surgery later on. And I got very lucky again that it didn't turn out to be a pressing thing, but you want to come out of these accidents with an empty belly is something I've learned. Um, so after about three hours of me whinging around and bleeding, eventually I (laughs) remember looking up and just seeing like two pairs of feet kind of kick over this bulge in the rock above us. And, you know, like angels descending from the heavens to USR Rangers coming down to get me. And it was a pretty amazing moment seeing them, um, We'd seen the helicopter flying around. We didn't have any sort of updates on what was going on. We just knew something was happening somewhere to have proof that people were coming to rescue was a really beautiful thing. Um, The Rangers get down to us with a gurney checked out um, to make sure that my spine actually was more or less intact and that. I was not going to become more injured by moving me. And then I had the moment of the most pain I hope to, well, (laughs) I hope will be the most pain I ever have to experience in my life Um, to move my body from the portal edge to the gurney, both Rangers Each ranger grabbed one of my legs. Zach grabbed my left arm, which is all broken. And then with my one good limb, my right arm, I had this little piece of tat that I was pulling on. And it took us like two or three heaves to move me into um, the gurney. And I just remember seeing like stars and colors and my vision starting to like black a little bit and just screeching like a banshee because I was in so much pain with people pulling on my shattered hip. Um, But they eventually got me into the gurney, um, checked me out one more time, gave me some sort of magical chemical straight to my nose that made all the pain go away. And 30 minutes later, they lowered me to the ground. Um, then there was a team of YOSAR uh, volunteers waiting with um, a stretcher with a giant wheel on it, put me onto that, took me out on like the relatively short approach to El Cap, to um, the road, got me into the park's um, ambulance, and then the ambulance got me to another ambulance. And sometime around... One in the morning, I was in Modesto in the ER.
0: You guys rappelled from how many pitches up are you? You said 24?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think we were on the 23rd pitch, so we had to do 22 pitches of lowering. We were definitely more than 2,000 feet up. Um, Wow. Yeah, it was a a pretty amazing thing to see, and I wish I had been a little bit more clear-headed to fully understand everything that was going into it. But from my understanding, they had multiple ropes tied together, and they had two sets of these ropes coming down to the the ranger that was with me as I was lowering. And on top, they had a relatively large team of um, USR workers, taking turns passing ropes um, through their uh, belay system and lowering us down to the ground. I had several surgeries in Modesto. I had to get a metal bar to put my hip back together and then a metal bracket to um, put my elbow back together. Apparently, I had both broken the ulna really badly and had a pretty deep laceration there. So some pieces of my bone actually fell out. And they didn't have enough bone to fully reconstruct my elbow, but they, I guess, winged it and filled in the rest with something else. Um, I, they managed to get my lung uncollapsed by the second day so I could breathe again.
0: So then what were the learnings?
1: Lesson number one is exactly what you're talking about. Recoveries take a long time and more than they are challenging. They are really, really boring. Um, you spend a lot of time just sitting there, like watching your bones grow. And anytime anyone sort of reached out to me, whether it was a famous rock caller or my parents or just a friend I hadn't seen in a while, um, it was Always really, really well warranted. So, if you know anyone that's in the recovery process, reach out, go hang out with them. It's very appreciated. Um, After I got uh, released from the hospital, I made my way back up to Seattle where my family is. And I spent three months just sitting in a wheelchair in my parents' basement. And that was especially when I um, appreciated human contact. You know, one thing I really love about climbing is the sense of independence and being out there on your own and like knowing you have lots of agency and taking care of yourself and keeping yourself safe. And one of the beauties about big wall climbing is, you know, you're at sea it's you and your partner and all the skills you have internally and all the gear you managed to bring up with you. And like, that's it. And it's a really beautiful thing to be feel totally autonomous. Um, and it was a really strange thing to, in, you know, essentially the blink of an eye go from being just me and Zach against the world, making our way up this rock to suddenly, you know, relying on a lot of humans that I had never met, didn't know existed until a second ago and have lots of people sort of step up and really take care of me whether it was the rangers coming down to get me the people that flew the helicopter the people on top that were lowering them off the you know millions of nurses and people in the hospital that got to just deal with me being you know a sedated lump on morphine for a couple of weeks the doctors that you know literally screwed me back together um and the physical therapists that were all on the way it's kind of staggering just thinking about the sheer number of humans that were involved in the rescue and the recovery process for me—that's um,
0: a—that's—that's that's a huge realization.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Nothing like breaking your hip open to really force you to confront it.
0: <laughs> well, it makes you slow down. You know, you're literally, you're literally stuck there. So, you know, you have the time to to appreciate those people and those things, and, and have the vulnerability and the space to just sit there and be a gracious acceptor. Yeah, definitely.
1: And I, I think the vulnerability aspect of it was key. You know, at the time, I was a 22 year old dumb man. You know, all I knew was you know, being sure able-bodied and a little cocky and never had really thought too critically about these things. But then to like realize that, you know, we're all pretty fragile. We can all get hurt so easily that it's fine to need help from other people and that other people have lots of skills and training that are there to help you out with that. And that it's okay to, you know, be on the receiving end of this sort of stuff was a really important moment. Also to realize like how much good you can do for another person, um, by being a helper. Yeah. So, Spent three months in my parents' basements. You know, uh, I went from being in a wheelchair to walking in about the the course of one week once they decided that my hip had sort of shored up enough. Um, I spent about a month just walking around and practicing being a human. And then in October that year, I moved out to Namibia in Southern Africa to go work on a research project for nine months. And almost exactly a year later, um, my friend Zach came and visited me out in Southern Africa, and we went on about a month-long climbing trip in Namibia and South Africa, And I got to go climbing for the first time since the accident in, um, the middle of the Namib desert on this rock called the Spitzkulpa, um, with Zach again. And that was, um, not only a beautiful place to climb and anyone who's ever on the continent or in that area should go check it out, but it was, uh, I think really important in my recovery. You know, I had, um, you know, been a little bit scared about climbing again. Um, I knew I really liked climbing. I knew I wanted to get back into it because, even as I was injured. And even as I was in the hospital, I kept, you know, looking at my friend's Facebook pictures and looking at mountain project and just daydreaming about climbing and realize it was, it was nice realizing that getting hurt wasn't going to stop me from being a climber. But at the same time, I was also pretty, um, unsure about how to get back into it. You know, would I be able to climb the same way ever again? I knew my like left hip and my left arm didn't work the same way. I knew that I, you know, could make these sorts of mistakes that cause serious injury. Um, and I think if I had, you know, done it on my own, I would have eased back into it really slowly. And that might not have been the best way to approach it. But the cool thing about being with partner, I really trusted and out in the middle of Africa was that we just had to kind of step up and do it. So, um, my first route back after getting hurt was this five, eight beautiful kind of like corner system for a couple pitches. And I remember, um, leading the second pitch and placing gear, like every three feet, just, Sewing this thing up so it up. exceptionally. Um and I'm glad I did that. That's what I knew. Well, good yeah, but it, it, it felt really good. And I got to the end of the pitch eventually after placing like a million pieces of gear and back cleaning some stuff. Um and um feeling like, all oh, right, yeah, like this does work. And you know, it I'll take it slow and I'll take it conservatively, but like I can climb and like I can I can do this. Um and as I climbed more with Zach on that trip. And in the like months and years afterwards, um, kind of found like a pretty, uh, amazing transformation in that, like my mental approach to climbing had totally flipped around. Um, in the past, whenever I'd gotten scared or gotten into like a tough situation, I would tend to just like kind of turn off my brain and turn on like that dumb animal strength and pull through and just make it happen. Um, and be a little you know bullheaded about it. Um, and then now I find that whenever I get scared, I have like a much greater ability to think laterally, to keep my eyes, my, my eyes open and think critically about stuff. And I think it's just because I, I know that you, like, I really believe in my heart of hearts now that you have to be smart while you're climbing. Um, and I think that ultimately it's made me a better climber. Looking back on my accident, um, I realize now that there was like a 5.8 exit that I could have done, like almost exactly where I fell. But I was just so in the moment and so fixated on what was happening in front of my face. that I didn't look like two feet to my left to see this like rail that I could have just like hand traversed out on um, and gotten out of that situation with. Um, And I I think that by just being like a more aware of my own climbing ability and more thoughtful about how I climb, I'm better for it. So,
0: But it does seem like it takes uh, a pretty big accident to kind of shake us, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And and I think what it was is like – that, that strategy I'd climbed with before had worked for a really long time. I'd been climbing for about six or seven. No, that's not right. Um, five years at that point, I'd climbed some walls I'd climbed a 70 bunch. Um, I'd done some like, you know, hard climbs. And whenever I'd gotten scared, like really, truly scared, I would just go for it. And that strategy works until it doesn't. Um, and looking back on it now, it's, I'm pretty lucky that I hadn't gotten into some serious trouble beforehand. Um, and I think that you can, you know, by staying aware, by thinking critically about what position you're in and what, you know, what the risks might be for committing to a move versus maybe backing off or looking for other ways around it, you just open yourself up to more possibilities and more options. And that gives you just a better chance of making the right decision.
0: What advice, I mean, cause you're still, you're, you are climbing now, yep. I mean, you, you know, you climbed in Africa uh, about a year after your accident, um, and you're still climbing. So what advice do you have for those of us who um, aren't climbing and who can't climb after an accident or, you know, what, what advice do you have for folks who are kind of dealing with what we call stress injury after a traumatic event?
1: After I got hurt, I spent three months in a wheelchair and, you know, both my parents work. My sister doesn't live at home anymore. I spent a lot of that time, um, sitting at home in my basement, um, doing absolutely nothing. And at first I wanted to go in with this idea of like, you know, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to get all this stuff done. I'm going to learn how to play a new instrument and learn a new language and develop all these skills. And a couple weeks in found myself kind of doing the exact opposite. I would wake up in the morning and I would just lie in bed and stare at the ceiling for like an hour before dragging myself into the wheelchair. Just because once I was in the wheelchair, I was going to be doing the exact same thing. There was no reason to get out of bed and I just didn't want to have to deal with it. Um, And it was, just like this weird dissonance from having just gone from being a very like able-bodied climber doing this thing. I was really passionate about and really loved to just sitting all day, every day and kind of being a burden on people, not being able to be productive and also realizing that I didn't have this like mental drive that I just assumed I would have to like be cheerful every day and like stay super productive with my time. Um, And looking back on it now, I think that's like the advice I would give is that like, that's okay These accidents, accidents really change your life a lot. And recovery is really hard. And I don't think that the expectation should be that you're going to always be on your game and that you're going to maximize your time as you're recovering. You know, I think the best thing that I did was kind of just check out for a bit and, you know, just let my body recover without stressing myself out too much and kind of get really used to being bored it sounds sort of strange to say but like even just like dealing with boredom i view as like a victory enough and i feel very okay with the fact that i accomplished absolutely nothing in those three months of sitting in the wheelchair other than growing a little bit of bone um and i i think that you know like you said people don't talk about recovery that often or the mental um, places that it takes you to and that i had gone in with this like expectation of who i was going to be in recovery that was pretty much impossible and not not tenable in my situation. And at first let that get me down a little bit until I realized that it's kind of okay to like be in a tough situation and just get through it. Um, that even just getting through it is, you know, hard enough in a victory in in and of itself.
0: So, so have you climbed that same route that you injured yourself on since then?
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I got onto the American Alpine clubs website and applied for one of their live your dream grants and very fortuitously was able to, um, win some money from them to buy airfare. And that turned out to be just like the, you know, light under my butt, the first push of the, s- the snowball that I really needed. I remember getting that um, message that I got it and calling up Zach and saying, hey man, like I have money. I'm coming out to California. When are we going to climb this thing? Um, so last October, we got back together. We I flew out to Oakland. We blitzed out to the Valley and jumped straight back onto the nose um, and climbed it again. And this time around, after, you know, seven or six and a half years of growing as a human, growing as a climber, it was amazing how different the experience was. Um, And it was such a valuable thing to come back to it and to sort of, um, you know, face this thing that had been hanging over me in the back of my mind for so many years. On our first day on the wall, we climbed three pitches. And our third day, we climbed 13 pitches, which was a stark um, juxtaposition, but Uh, it was, it was really great. We were leading in blocks this time and my block started with the great roof, which was awesome. Um, and then got up to pancake flake and, you know, right on cue, as soon as we got to the play on pancake flake, the wind started whipping up again. Um, it was this beautiful, super sunny day. Um, and I remember this weird feeling just like strange slurry of feelings going through my brain that I've never really experienced before. I was excited and like really confident cause I knew I could do it, but at the same time had all this weight that like, Oh, what if I mess up again? You know, does that mean I'm just the world's worst climber? Like, is it going to feel easy? Is it going to feel hard? Am I going to be terrified? Like what happens if I get there and just seize up and just all this like strange
0: apprehension Yeah, yeah
1: apprehension and excitedness and uncertainty. Also right. When you get there again, you have all this exposure and all this wind. Um, I was all fired up from, leading the, the great roof and yeah, got through the free climbing part without too much problem. This time had like every small cam known to man. Um, another big <laughs> thing that's happened. I was just going
0: to ask that. How oh, much gear yeah. did you take? I racked <laughs> up the T. It
1: was awesome. Um, and also there's been a lot of technological advances since 2012, uh, which have really come in handy. Like when we first got on the nose, I think we had like one offset cam. Maybe this time we had a whole rack of them. We had a bunch of totems that we had scrounged up and in terms out totem cams make aid climbing fun and safe and easy. Um, so if you don't have them, get them. Um, yeah. And I got up to that spot and kept waiting for like this moment of recognition. Like I kept looking because I had like that image in my mind of like what the crack looked like right when I fell and what that slipper felt like in my hand and like how terrible the foothold right that I was trying to stand on was. I kept kind of like trying to find that spot and actually couldn't really identify it. Um, which was strange and great in equal measures. Um, and I think part of it was cause I was able to just move there a lot more confidently this time and like not get hung up in any one spot. And it was just kind of in that nice flow that you get when you're aid climbing, where you're just like solving a little problem after a little problem. All of a sudden you look down and realize you've gone kind of a huge distance. Um, and I remember getting to the top of the pitch and not only being extremely excited, but also, um, I had like all this like tension built up in my body. Cause like waiting for the crux, like waiting for this crescendo to come. And all of a sudden it was just over, but it was, it was great. And just a, beautiful bluebird day and you know there's nothing quite like seeing the valley when it's super sunny out um you know, we could see pap Dome for the first time um and just all the colors were really dramatic and it was a really vibrant wonderful moment um also to have just that affirmation that like over the years i have gotten you know better as a human and as a climber i'd never really been sure you know this is a thing that had Very definitively marked the balance of like my mental ability and my climbing ability at one point in my life, and I've gone off and you know done a lot of other things, climbed other things all around the country and in different places, and felt very good about my progression as a climber. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I've always sort of just known like, am I actually progressing, or am I still you know below this hurdle that I ran into once? It was a really cool moment of affirmation to get to the end of that route just think like, yeah, you know, all this work and time I've put into the sport and becoming a more controlled human has actually paid off. And like this thing that was once so terrifying and so hard and, you know, almost killed me, like was fun. You know, we had a blast the whole way up. It was, it was really such a great time. And it was, um, a really rewarding moment to be able to come back and get on something like that again. And I'm just so happy that I was able to, to do that, that the AAC was able to facilitate that, that I'm still climbing with Zach, who's one of my best friends who's, you know, been there through this entire experience, you know, to be there as like older people and um, totally different people than we were in the past, but on this rock that like, you know, felt kind of familiar.
0: Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor, and thank you to the Colorado Hourbound School and Sunto for being contributing sponsors. The Colorado Howard Brown School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit www.cobs.org to plan your next adventure. When you have your mind set on a certain goal or adventure, you want to make sure your watch can also go the distance. With up to 120 hours of continuous exercise tracking, the Sunto 9 is built to last just like you. It is also tested tough through hundreds of hours of military grade testing and built with durability in mind. Join the American Alpine Club today for an exclusive discount on the Sunto 9. Until next time, play hard and be smart.